Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to episode five of part two of the podcast series, The Alpha Human, all about Socrates and his life and philosophy. This is your first episode. Glad to have you on board. And everyone else, welcome back. And join me as we enter The Fray. Are you happy? It's at once a simple question, but it also entails much more. Are you happy right now? Are you happy in general? As a person, those are two different things. Are there two different types of happiness? Personally, I have a happiness problem. I have a habit of polluting my current state of happiness with thoughts of it ending. Something miserable always lurks. For me, that misery is responsibility. I have this built-in early warning system that just loves to remind me, no matter how much fun I'm actually having, that it is a certainty that is going to end, probably sooner than later. And it will end with me having to do something for somebody. Now, as I've said a few times over this series, I can be a real pain in the ass to be around. Overall, despite my own limited version of happiness, I honestly don't begrudge anyone their pursuit of happiness. Now, here is where I get all libertarian, as long as they don't negatively affect on me. Now, as simple as that sounds, considering the myriad connections and subtexts that are involved in something as simple as purchasing fast food, I mean, Cracker Barrel and Chick-fil-A come to mind, it seems that in today's world, it is difficult to actually not affect someone else. Happiness is universal. I was happy to find the ancient Athenians shared my feelings concerning live and let live. Quoting Pericles from his funeral speech, here he's speaking of the general feeling of openness one could find in his city. Quote, We have no black looks or angry words for our neighbors if he enjoys himself in his own way, and we can abstain from the little acts of churlishness, which, though they leave no mark, yet cause annoyance to whoso notes them. Unquote. A good entry into the what-if game, as in, what if Adolf Hitler was killed during World War I, or what if Tom Selleck had accepted the role of Indiana Jones, what if we were able to, as a species, abide to the basic tenets espoused by Pericles, especially the acts of churlishness he talks about, the nitpicky purity test that most human endeavors devolve into. What if humanity evolved culturally to allow our neighbor to enjoy themselves in their own way, stopping short of the suspicion and judgment that seems to follow human beings through all times and all places? What if, indeed? In any event, happiness can be attending a tractor pole or a night at the opera. Happiness can involve fishing a mountain stream or working at an art gallery. Happiness is an amazingly universal, extremely flexible concept. But just when you think you got happiness figured out, you find out you can't make all the people happy all the time. Happiness is funny. It's reciprocal. You can make and be made to feel happy about another individual. We can make ourselves happy. Inanimate objects can make us happy. The terms make us is a strange one too. What can an object actually do? Can it make me do anything? How can it make me feel something? 
Happiness can be lost and happiness can be found. Happiness is not reserved for only positive things. To paraphrase Renton from the movie Train Spotting, we do happiness because it feels fucking amazing. Now, in the movie, he was talking about taking heroin intravenously. So bad things can make us happy too. The Germans have a word for feeling happiness at someone else's misfortune. Schadenfreude or Schadenfreude. Of course they do. Happiness is a neutral, subjective concept that all of humanity uses to express contentment, joy, love, basically all the best parts of being a human being. But that's not all. Happiness shares an amazing attribute that only a few other human concepts can boast. Now, consider the last time you chose a course of action that others found questionable. They will ask you, why? Why are you doing what you are doing? And you can answer, I thought it was a good idea. Why? They will ask again. I've always wanted to do something like this. You answer. Again, they will not be satiated with your answer and press on. Why? Finally, you answer, because it makes me happy. And with that, all questions cease. Once happiness is claimed as the motive behind a course of action, all discussion of reasons is dropped. Plato observed as much in his dialogue, Symposium, saying, quote, Of one who wants to be happy, there is no longer any point in asking, for what reason does he want to be happy? The answer is already final, unquote. Happiness is flexible, neutral, and absolute. The mysterious abilities of happiness was not lost on Socrates. He knew that if one could attain happiness for a large portion of society, then there was a great chance that the society was going to be just and equitable and a great place to live. He found happiness so powerful that he would make it the cornerstone of his overall philosophy. Having worked through the attributes of happiness, Socrates would not have missed the neutral character of it. He would see men striving for happiness on the backs of other men, their own family, and worse of all, harming themselves in an attempt to attain a twisted, fleeting form of happiness. With so much subjectivity and risk involved with happiness, was it even possible to formulate a mode of living that ensured a saner, logical, good with a capital G type of happiness? Socrates sure thought there was, and he called it eudaimonia. And that's with an E, E U D O M O N I A, eudaimonia. It is important here to understand the focus on happiness and make a distinction between the concept of Socratic happiness and the other competing definition of it that of the much-maligned fellow Greek, Epicurus. Socrates saw happiness as the result of living virtuously. One did not do something simply because it made them happy. One did things based on living a virtuous life, and they will become happy. They will achieve eudaimonia. For Epicurus, the act itself is where happiness is derived. There is no journey or quest for happiness. For Epicurus, happiness was even more grounded, more embodied than Socrates, for he felt that each and every act, humanity is seeking happiness. Now, for Socrates, it was all about living a virtuous life in order to attain his version of happiness, what he called eudaimonia. Now, it consisted of the following virtues, courage, moderation, justice, piety, and wisdom. To achieve eudaimonia, one simply needed to observe these five virtues in every decision, thought, and action you have. 
It is a list of practical guidance that is fluid and can be applied as the situation dictates. Each virtue is capable of achieving eudaimonia on its own or in any combination of your choosing. They are designed to be used every day, even in the most mundane of circumstances. Overall, Socrates offers very few absolutes with his five virtues. They are not something that he knows from first causes. He only understands their function after they have been exhibited. This is key. He professes no a priori, that's a philosophic term, it's Latin, I think, that means prior knowledge, is used often in describing the conclusions one reaches in the mind using metaphysical concepts. For instance, is there a universal morality that we as humans have a priori knowledge of? Meaning, we were not taught it, we just know it. The concept of a priori knowledge is used all throughout philosophy. Now, for me, I think it's a little bit of bullshit. It's a filler, like the ether in classical physics to me that it's used to buttress the delicate arguments of all the academic philosophy, but it really serves little purpose other than an edification of immaterial concepts. Far from that, being raised by a midwife in a place like Athens, Socrates was very reluctant to put any stock in any concept existing without having exposure to and assistance with acquiring the knowledge that most philosophers cavalierly hoist up on the flimsy frame of a priori knowledge. Socrates was not searching for knowledge as such. Notice that it is not even one of his five virtues, knowledge. He found knowledge was basically reserved for man's understanding of the inanimate world. When a man worked with shit that didn't move, they were wizards. Once things started to change or move, the firm grasp that stuff like classical physics and geometry had maintained over inert matter begins to slip, and by the time you are dealing with something as complicated as human behavior, the rules that governed the amount of arable land that required plowing were found extremely lacking in understanding and improving human behavior. Now, deep down, I think Socrates knew there were no answers when it came to humans and how they act. Answers in the strict definition sense. Answers that philosophy has been chasing their tails for thousands of years working to prove if their version of He-Man is better than your version of My Little Pony. The key for Socrates is not in the absolute of definition, but in the clarity of inquisition. Hence his famous argumentative style. I mean, it had its own name, the elenctic, E-L-E-N-C-T-I-C. So I'm trying to do the hard C there, elenctic. And its ability to find out what one didn't know versus gift-wrapping convenient answers that rely on rash innovation and speculation. Socrates felt that searching for the ideal forms of his virtues was enough. If it finds a concrete, reality-based answer, then word up. If not, then the search and the questions go on. Now, the early dialogues of Plato, considered the closest to the actual thoughts of Socrates, are typically based on a specific virtue. For instance, courage is the subject of the Lackey's dialogue. Piety, the subject of the Euphyro. In each case, and in most of them, Socrates and the object of his elenctic focus are not able to determine an answer to what courage is, or piety, or moderation. Now, the exceptions to this are the virtues justice and wisdom. Socrates staked out a clear answer when it came to justice. We covered this at length in the previous episode. Never do an injustice. Never do an injustice in return for an injustice. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. All virtues will obey this simple edict. 
following this simple morality will allow you to achieve a higher level of wisdom, the one virtue that flows freely through all other virtues in working to attain eudaimonia. Now you can see how wisdom can play a crucial role in almost any circumstance. Now the wisdom of Socrates was typically displayed in the basic form of, I don't know, and I'm not sure how you can know, so please explain. Wisdom was not a know-it-all goal for Socrates. It was a much more practical goal than that. Socrates was not offering a get-rich-quick scheme to achieve his idea of happiness. For Socrates, wisdom was not an academic concept either. It was a day-to-day imperative. You need to come to the understanding that it was impossible to know or teach a virtue. This is why Socrates didn't consider himself a teacher. He didn't take money for teaching, and he loathed the sophists who made it a commercial enterprise to promise true knowledge that he knew was a hollow, superficial version of true wisdom. To truly live as a eudaimonious meant not thinking about it, but living it. It was only possible to live the virtues, to act on the world using the virtues that would impart true knowledge on humankind and free them from the cycles of chasing a self-destructive, toxic form of happiness. Now, that being said, Socrates was not a stoic or one of those philosophers that locked himself in a cave and whipped himself. Now, he enjoyed the finer things in life from time to time and felt that acquiring wealth, fame, and honor were in themselves neutral. They could be used wisely or ignorantly. In fact, Socrates would go as far to make it sound like his system was a bit of an infomercial or, dare I say it, he actually sounds like a preacher. Quote, I ask you to make your first and strongest concern not wealth but the soul, that it should be as virtuous as possible. For virtue does not come from wealth, but through virtue, wealth and everything else, private and public, become good for men. Unquote. All the material shit that we value so much in life is not without value to Socrates. A nice house, a cool car, lots of likes on your Instagram post. All those have value, but they're just vastly inferior to the value of the virtues that should be observed in the process of interacting with all that stuff we think is so important. You don't have to be poor and destitute to live virtuously and find your sense of eudaimonia. But here is the fine print. Socrates knows that if you choose to live by his credo, you will eventually end up looking and acting a lot like him. The reason? Because Socrates' system was based solely on the physical world and the inner world of human life and their interaction. His whole life was dedicated to helping all people realize this simple secret to happiness. Less is more. That is wisdom. So is wisdom the cornerstone of all virtue? Of all eudaimonia? Is it the essence of all being? No, Socrates didn't think so. He, of course, had no idea what the fundamental building block of being and consciousness was. Now, he had his own opinions, but he felt it was a waste of time to discuss because who the fuck knew the answer to a question like that? Regardless of the why, it was a fact that it happened, so how best do we deal with it now? Another way we can consider it is look at water. Water is super prevalent in our bodies, and all life on this planet, it can be argued that water is the single most important substance to life in general. But water is not the cause of life, or at least not conclusively. Socrates saw wisdom in human affairs as similar to water in the natural world. Essential, but unknown what role it plays in the makeup of the cosmos. 
Socrates was always at a loss why his learned companions were always so accepting of the next fad that was being propagated in the Agora, especially the ones that relied on immaterial speculation. What a colossal waste of time to Socrates. Wasn't life challenging enough not to spend one's time in a dream world arguing over castles made of sand? Now, if you approach each and every day with the Socratic virtues in mind and form the habits necessary to abide by the decisions you make, utilizing their guidance, you will be happy. If I were selling something, I would add a, I guarantee it. Of course, I can't do that, but I am damn certain that if you were to make a concerted effort to live as much as humanly possible by the code of Socrates, you will be happier than you are now. Habits, as far as Socrates was concerned, were important. Simple dress, recall that Solon instituted a sensible dress code for the city a century or so prior, and Socrates saw no reason to question this edict. It had made sense to him, so he did it over and over again for his entire life, never deviating from the theme. And working on this episode, just as an aside, I thought about the fact that Socrates was consciously aware of his Socratesness and practiced a form of his elenctic skills for about 55 consecutive years, every day. Now, at first I glossed over this, but then I thought about it some more. This is just one guy, not a corporation or some other institution, but one individual lifetime. Thousands of days. Now, I tried to think of some other person that had had that sort of longevity and consistency, both of place and of action. The first that one that popped into my head of all people was J. Edgar Hoover, who ran the FBI for so long. Now, certainly, it is hard to argue that Hoover left his mark due in large part to the fact that he was at the Bureau for 47 years. Now, the other person I thought of was the first Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar, the Caesar of Jesus, the adopted son of the assassinated Julius Caesar. Now, he was adopted at the age of 18, and they were not very close. Now, Augustus ruled as the fledgling empire's first living god and established the moniker Caesar that would confer the title that would resound through history and into the 20th century with titles like Tsar and Kaiser. In almost every way, he was different than his adopted father. Octavius, as he was called before ascending to the curile chair of the emperor and proclaiming himself Augustus, nevertheless did share one crucial quality, a keen mind for organization. After Augustus won the Civil War, vanquishing Mark Antony and Cleopatra, which is real, that's quite a story in its own right, and the remaining Romans decided that they needed a Caesar after all, and that was that. The Rome we know and love came into being and would last for centuries, being ruled over by one Caesar after another. Now Augustus, much like George Washington being the first, set in motion a natural order to the empire only strengthened over his 40 years of rule. Now that is a remarkable length of time to rule something as unstable and large as the Roman Empire. Rome was kept afloat simply by the efficiency of the processes set up by Augustus over the course of his regime. There's a saying in sports, sometimes the most important ability is availability. Longevity and consistency matter. Real change can be affected simply by doing the same thing repeatedly. In the case of Augustus Caesar and J. Edgar Hoover, they had the advantage of being the head honchos. Even idiot leaders get followed, so that doesn't guarantee success, but commitment to a certain system can be taken to amazing lengths and heights when someone of unique ability is paired with the time to develop them. Socrates was different because he was no leader of anyone. 
His influence was simply due to his force of life, his alan vital, if you will. Though not a leader per se, Socrates certainly influenced and inspired many people. The followers of Socrates, and they were many, followed or attempted to follow many facets of their mentor's life, his argumentative style, his ironic use of language, his skepticism towards any sophistry, his mistrust of metaphysics, his distrust of people in power. But none of them fully committed to living like Socrates. Somewhere along the way, we all lose sight of the five virtues. Why? Now, for most of us, I would venture it is the difference between how we view who is responsible for our existence. If you believe in a higher power, a supreme being guiding you and having a plan, then happiness lies in releasing the responsibility of your own happiness. Surely you have input, but despite the popular phrase, you are the co-pilot, not your deity. Then there are people like Socrates who, even though you could call him a believer in souls, I mean the immortality of the soul he was not certain of, but sure hoped it was true, and you could even call him a monotheist, because he did believe in his one God who told him exclusively what not to do. And that, for me, is the distinction. Believing in a metaphysical, supernatural being that tells you both what to do and what not to do, and one that just applies the brakes when necessary. It may sound like there's not much of a difference, but I think there's a world of difference. For Socrates, his negative deity is a blade, a simple cutting device that cleaves the right from the wrong. His consciousness, you could call it. Now, if the voice in your head is both negative and positive, then hold on tight because you've lost control of the process a bit. Unlike the blade of a negative deity, the positive and negative deity is like a pair of scissors, able to craft and create new things out of existing material. Understanding how reason works and knowing the very low bar that we set for ourselves when it comes to rationalizing our own decisions, the risk is of knowing who exactly is giving the orders. I mean, how do you know the voice in your head is God and not you? By limiting the voice to one of a purely negative one, Socrates once again proves that he is amazing. This, I am certain, is a logical decision he made after giving it major thought. It may have been the time he stood still for 24 hours in a driving snowstorm without shoes. In any event, setting up guardrails around his own reason, realizing the risk and allowing his mind unfettered freedom to convince himself of anything, he applied the considerable breaks to his mental process allowing himself only ability to not do something, significantly mitigating the risk of listening to the voices in his head. Living like Socrates is hard because you had to stop trying to make yourself happy and start doing things that were pious, moderate, courageous, just, and wise. That meant a change of tune for the voices in your head. Bye bye happiness voice, and hello, virtue voice. If you can do that, then you will be the happiest dude on earth. It's hard to do that when you're listening to the voices in your head tell you why you deserve something or why you need to have something. That voice, left unchecked, can get you a whole lot of unhappiness. For Socrates, happiness in the form of eudaimonia was not a self-serving process. You didn't do things to make yourself happy. That is called hedonism or epicurism. For Socrates, happiness happened naturally if you lived virtuously. When living according to his virtues, then greed and avarice and all the trappings of selfishness evaporate under the weight of goodness and wisdom. Choosing not to live a virtuous life 
committing selfish acts, acting unjustly, and perpetrating evil were all banished by living eudaimonally. It is also important to recall that Socrates does not recognize a negative corollary to happiness. There are no negative virtues. He acknowledges that there is evil in the world, but that evil has one and only one cause. That cause is ignorance. Once the veil of ignorance is removed, then the evil disappears as well. This is why his ability to confess to knowing nothing is so important. By demystifying evil as simply a lack of knowledge, he can safely say stuff like, I don't know, and not feel like he is taking some huge risk. For he knows that if he just keeps inquiring, sooner or later he will gain more wisdom, and his ignorance will be vanquished. Now this is no small feat. For instance, at the end of Euthyro, a dialogue all about piety, one of his five virtues, Socrates is left without a clear answer as to what piety actually is. His companion, Euthyro, unable to convince him of his definition. Socrates says, quote, Alas, my companion, you will leave me in despair. I was hoping that you would instruct me on the nature of piety and impiety, and that I might have cleared myself of Miletus and his indictment against me. I would have told them that I would have been enlightened by Euthyro, and have had given up rash innovations and speculations in which I indulged only through ignorance, and now I am about to lead a better life. Unquote remembering that this very charge was the one of the direct reasons Socrates was put to death. If you ever needed an example of a case when Socrates could have attempted to talk himself out of a situation using falsities and flashy language, this would have been the time. Not to mention taking the advice of his friend and accepting an incomplete definition of piety just in order to stay the executioner. But Socrates did neither. He felt the answers given were either lacking in some way or that they depended too much on rash innovation and speculations. Which, I think, is the key point from that quote. Giving up rash innovations and speculations in which I have indulged only through ignorance. That's what he says. It does a wonderful job of making my point that there was and is no one quite like Socrates in all of philosophical history. In some ways, His is an anti-philosophy, but only judged by our standard as philosophy as an academic exercise. Socrates was willing, more willing than just about any other human in history, to put in the work to learn all that there is to know about achieving happiness, which he viewed as exclusively practical, dealing with the real world and his place in it. He abhorred the speculation that the pre-Socratics practice, a new thing that was being called metaphysics. If you recall the play Clouds, in which Socrates was portrayed as someone who, quote, speculated about the heaven above and searched into the earth beneath and made the worse appear the better cause, unquote. That line references the natural philosophers we call the pre-Socratics, though many of them lived during Socrates' lifetime. Socrates goes to great length to distance himself from their speculations because they were, even though they tried hard not to, engaging in rash innovations in the form of metaphysics. Now, it only got worse after he died. Socrates' influence and desires were not able to keep up with Plato, Aristotle, and the others that decided to ignore their teacher, blow right through the stop sign he had put up on the road that led to rash innovation and speculation. The entire corpus of Western philosophy and most of Western theology began here. Everyone jumped in the pool. From the wackiest of pre-Socratics who thought that we were made of just little teeny tiny versions of ourselves, little atomic-sized versions, all grouped together to form us to the ever-sensible and proper Plato, not to mention every other philosopher and theologian ever.
The great exception to engaging in rash innovations and speculations? Our alpha human, Socrates. Now, that's not to say his input and contributions were entirely left out of the process. Socrates' view of happiness, his eudaimonia, did become the traditional understood definition of happiness used by most branches of philosophy to this day. I mean, happiness is the ultimate goal of humanity, and in order to achieve the best possible version of happiness, one needs to live virtuously by abiding by his five principles. Now, philosophers after Socrates would offer their own systems to achieve happiness, but nonetheless, happiness remained the goal, and the ability to attain it was a means to that end. Assigning happiness as the goal and deducing the natural processes necessary to reach said goal was all our boy Socrates. To this day, it is how we see happiness. Now, at this point, after over 10 hours of blabbing away, I've had said much of what I believe makes Socrates so special. I have laid out his unique contributions to the world of philosophy, logic, morality, irony, death. All have been covered in detail how Socrates was able to forge new ground, establish enduring precedents, and leave his fingerprints all over the Western world. Now, to put it another way, Socrates and the life he lived was so impressive to his contemporaries that more than one of them dedicated multiple books concerning him. His life, his thoughts, his overall being were things to emulate and admire. Plato, the author of our current metaphysical world we happen to live under, was so impressed with Socrates the man that he became the very voice of the Platonic world. Now, why would Plato choose Socrates and not himself, or someone of equal fame and repute, such as Pericles or Protagoras? Because there was no one quite like Socrates. No one that actually lived by the five virtues solely and embodied a philosophy that, while simple and admirable, was ignored for the flights of fantasy that the metaphysical can provide. People like Pericles and Protagoras talked a good game, but there was only one Athenian that walked the walk, and they knew it and didn't even bother with alternative when it came to establishing the bedrock of their society on an ugly, content vagabond who wanted nothing more than to ask you a question or two. Now, with so much of humanity over the millennia searching for answers of how to best live one's life, why is something as simple, straightforward, and admired as Socrates' life and his eudaimonic philosophy so neglected? During his lifetime, Socrates was admired and then emulated by the wealthy class of youth, but ignored by most of the men in their positions of power. This became a very real threat to the existing power structure. It is important to know that Socrates was not proposing a life without nice stuff. He didn't see material things such as money and property and social realities like power, fame, and influence as inherently bad. Remember, there is no evil in the world, just ignorance. When someone harms someone in the quest for gold, it is not the gold that is to blame. It is the ignorance of the person involved in the injustice. If they search for wealth under the guidance of wisdom and the other virtues, then not only would they be happier, but they would also make more money. And that stands to reason. By Socrates' reckoning, if you viewed each step of the wealth process through the prison of his eudaimonia, each step would not only be just and moderate, but it would also be well-conceived, efficient, and long-lasting because they were built with attention to what matters most, living virtuously. The same goes for a myriad of other neutral concepts on life. Power, fame, glory. If pursued correctly, then one could be both rich, accomplished, and happy. Now, you can see why this philosophy was so threatening to those who held the power in Athens. They could certainly see it. They warned him with the Aristophanes play Clouds. 
tried to implicate him in a death squad murder plot and inevitably sentenced him to die for his corruption of youth. This is where it gets interesting for me because I see a direct corollary for how Socrates and his beliefs were treated by those in charge of Athens and how history has viewed him. Admired but ignored, emulated but co-opted, esteemed but misappropriated. We love Socrates but are loath to listen to him. It is simple, really. Obviously, the likes of Plato and the philosophy he will espouse, based on a metaphysics of rash innovation and speculation, placing the undue importance on something that can never be known by the average human being. Ignoring Socrates, after his death, humanity was given two choices. Number one, a secular answer that has no answers to give in the form of metaphysical jargon, doublespeak, and logical houses of cards, precariously balanced to serve only one of a multitude of diaphanous, hyperdefinitive theories that come and go like tumbleweeds in the wind. And number two, God. Now, both of these options originated in the world of ancient Greece. Philosophy and the concept of a monotheistic God seem like strange bedfellows. It is peculiar that a culture that had literally thousands of gods and goddesses to claim as their own decided to throw them all away for something else, something different, something more efficient, more logical. Well, when I put it that way, it is not as peculiar as I once thought. Of course the Greeks took the myth and folklore and decided to find out if it made sense to base one's concepts of humanity on them. And so, philosophy was born. And right from the start, despite the best efforts of those practicing this newfound love of knowledge, philosophy ventured into speculation and rash innovation. Though the Greeks, known as the pre-Socratics, tried their best to stick with the natural world, the physical, they couldn't help but wander into the supernatural, the metaphysical. They couldn't help it. We are hardwired to speculate. Our minds cannot help but race into the metaphysical. It is designed to do so. But to accept without conditions what a mind can construct can have major consequences. This is what Socrates was warning us all about. The trap one falls in when it comes to philosophy is to fall in love with the thinking part of the process. In due course, investigations into the material world will drift into the immaterial. The physical will become the metaphysical, and most of us will continue to apply the same logic, use the same metaphors, think in the same manner about stuff in our heads as we do the inert matter we encounter every day. But they are different. Matter has rules. The rules of matter become the basis of conscious awareness. Instinct develops as we interact with matter. Then comes the intellect that uses the same matter-based infrastructure we use to navigate and understand the physical rules and applies that to our inner world. But they are different worlds. Our inner world has no rules at least compared to the restrictions placed on matter, such as gravity, entropy, and relativity, no such mechanisms exist for our thoughts. But the rub is that most of us do not realize that we are using a square peg to hammer a tesseract into a round hole when we are using abstract thought. Once thought detaches wholly from reality and becomes abstract, it is free to roam, untethered to the constrictions of space and time. Imaginations flourish and furnish even the most stout matters of fact with additional affectations and personality. We give inanimate objects a front and a back. We bestow upon rocks and mud essences. We create elaborate spiritual worlds taken as fact and acquiesce to be ruled by unknowable perfection, whether that be in the form of a deity or ideas. That is the trap of applying the logic of the physical world to the mechanizations of the metaphysical one. It is the part of philosophy, and some would argue that is all that philosophy is, is the unknown part that creates the endless defining, 
refining, and opining that most of us find so tedious. Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe because it is all just a bunch of hot air and mumbo-jumbo. In the film The Big Short, the character played by Ryan Gosling explains the reason behind the use of hyper-specific terminology in the world of finance is that they do it just to seem smart, to make it more exclusive and specialized, to make you think that the professionals are the only people that can make sense of it for you. Now, there's a ton of that stuff going on with most of philosophy. A bunch of specialized minds tuned to a very specific channel that you have to spend most of your time learning the terminology to just so you can understand what the hell they're talking about. Now, hopefully after 13 episodes and almost 10 hours all about Socrates, you have a pretty good idea of what he would have felt about how philosophy was being practiced after he died. We have mentioned this before, to Socrates thinking deeply, waxing philosophical, was not at all an academic action. It was the very definition of a pragmatic, everyday life. A great example of this is in the way that Socrates spoke. Socrates' love of the simple, straightforward processes of nature was precisely why he maintained such simple, straightforward manners in his way of speaking. Socrates himself describes his manner of speaking in the Apology. After hearing the prosecution make their case with professional rhetorical splendor, he now asks a favor of the court. In his defense, quote, I must beg of you to grant me one favor, which is this. If you hear me using the same words in defense which I have been in the habit of using, and which most of you have heard in the Agora, and at the tables of the money changers or anywhere else, I would ask you not to be surprised and not to interrupt. Unquote. Socrates spoke simply because that is how the majority of the people he interacted with spoke. What was the point of foisting unnecessary complexity to an already challenging process, that of being generally comprehensible to the widest swath of people? Specialization only benefited the people in charge, acting as a sort of defense against interlopers. Socrates had no time for these types, the authority figures who claim knowledge of what cannot be known. Again, he turned to words to assist him in determining the validity of an argument. If it was metaphysical, then don't bother with reading from the instruction manual or parrot what some sophist charged you good money to memorize. Tell me what you really think, using what you know and using only your words. For Socrates, when someone spoke, it was a true indication of what is actually known versus what was only believed to be known by an individual. Now, Erasmus, he was a Dutch philosopher from around the 1500s AD, noted that Socrates was keen on hearing only what the individual thought in his own words. And there was good reason for that. Here he quotes Socrates from the dialogue Lysis, quote, Well then, my lad, said Socrates, speak so that I can see you, unquote. Erasmus believes that, quote, meaning thereby that a man's character is reflected less fully in his face than in his speech, unquote. Socrates knew we could get to the bottom of a professed knowledge, as most of it was superficial and based on speculation. When pressed to present the argument in simple terms, complex metaphysical concepts tend to experience technical difficulties. Speak to me in your words. Express to me your individual thoughts in simple terms so that I may understand them. This basic exercise would prove to be the foil that great many a metaphysical theory would run up against. This is not to say that Socrates was anti-knowledge. He's a conservative for sure, but he does not suffer from the particular malady that ails our modern conservatives with their forms of distrust of science, disavowals of fact, and everyone has an opinion. 
And he believes that man is capable of many great and lofty things, no matter how technologically advanced they are. He just doesn't dig false prophets and sophists selling their unjust version of knowledge, or the politicians peddling their authority as something of a logical necessity. So like Goldilocks, Socrates sampled the professional teachers, the sophists, as well as the men in positions of power, and found very little wisdom to be found in them at all. On the third try, he tried the craftsmen and artisans and had this to say, quote, At last I went to the artisans, for I was conscious that I knew nothing at all, as I may say, and I was sure that they knew many fine things, and in this I was not mistaken, for they did know many things of which I was ignorant, and in this they were certainly wiser than me, unquote. To Socrates, wisdom was in the living. It was not an academic exercise that takes place only in the mind. It was instead about practical processes of making sense of the world and your place in it. Socrates loved to be physically active. He exercised every day, usually naked and always in public, and felt that a fitness regime was key to a healthy body. In many ways, he felt that philosophizing was the exercise regimen for the mind. It was meant to be part of a daily routine that, when done correctly, prepares you best to face the world and make the most of its challenges and opportunities. For Socrates, there was no difference between physical health and mental health. It was a holistic understanding of what it meant to be human that Socrates and Socrates alone was able to harness and to fabricate a practical, livable philosophic system. He based it on the whole human, the physical and the psychological, all of it. Anything that took away from this focus was to him a waste of time and just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. Any questions as to why this was a threat to someone concerned with maintaining control of popular thought, someone like Plato or the Catholic Church, would find such an egalitarian, accessible, and altogether equal promise of happiness, not in some promised afterlife, but right fucking now, today, you, the peasant, the soldier, the midwife, the slave, the king, the academic philosopher, all of you can be happy simply by realizing you don't know us half as much as you think you do and begin to strip away all the layers of bullshit that you've enveloped yourself with to rationalize all your ignorant decisions that have made you feel so damn miserable. What good is it for those promising metaphysical truths like immortal afterlifes and ideal forms in exchange for obedience to offer a practical day-to-day system of living that no one is in charge of? I mean, it makes you think of John Lennon. Imagine a world with no religion. But you can add academic philosophy to that. Now, it messes up the song, but hopefully makes my point. Socrates' version of eudaimonia is kind of like Bitcoin or blockchain technology in that it is effective, runs without any oversight and management, and is not owned by anyone. Think what you will about Bitcoin technology, but be certain that the banks are not taking it lightly. Banks and metaphysical institutions are similar in this instance. They have a lot to lose if everyone stops using them. So Socrates was a different cat. Somehow, he was able to avoid a lot of the philosophical traps of his fellow Greeks. He zagged while everyone else zigged. In many ways, this is the core principle that everything Socrates was as a person and what he hoped to pass along to posterity. The secret of a content, satisfying life is not to get lost in one's head, to take each choice, each action, each moment to exercise justice, virtue, and in the end, hopefully attain a modicum of true happiness. So how much of an outlier was Socrates? Now, in order to best answer this question, it is necessary to do a little reconstruction of the progress of philosophy. 
Now, it's an amazingly stark contrast between everyone else and Socrates, so much so that it seems like some sort of magic trick or supernatural intervention that keeps Socrates embodied and committed to the natural world in the face of everyone else jumping onto the metaphysical train, becoming disembodied with their metaphysical thoughts and not looking back. Now, of course, this would seem like a magic trick if we didn't know how utterly awesome Socrates was. So our little journey will show in stark relief what makes Socrates so different. Now, to help us along, I'm going to lean on the book Philosophy in the Flesh by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. They have a specific part of their book dedicated just to this task of tracing the line of thought as it progressed from the material to the immaterial, the physical into the metaphysical, and zoomed right past our alpha human. Now, they start with some basic theories, which they call folk theories. You know, common sense, the perceived wisdom of the day, take your pick. These basic concepts make up how we know stuff, or at least how the Greeks thought we knew stuff. For the most part, Socrates believed these folk theories, and you probably do too. First one is the folk theory of the intelligibility of the world. Basically, that the world is orderly, the world makes sense, and here's the important part, we can understand it, we can gain knowledge of it. Number two is the folk theory of general kinds, which is pretty simple. Everything is a kind of thing, right? There's, there's no unicorns out there. Everything's a thing. There's humans, there's plants, there's, you know, flowers, there's vegetables, you know, there's different things. Everything's a thing. And the last thing is the folk theory of essences, number three. Now, this one sounds complicated. Every entity has an essence or nature that is a collective of properties that makes it the kind of thing that it is. And that is the causal source of its natural behavior. So it sounds complicated, but it's not so complicated, I'll put it this way. You're standing in front of something that is made of wood, has branches, roots, and leaves, and you notice other similar things of varying sizes indicating that there is a pattern of change that the thing in front of you goes through. Now, all of this is a long-ass way to describe a tree. Now, we know this because we can add up the attributes. It's made of wood, leaves, and has growth, and concluded as a tree. We also know, thanks to the world making systemic sense, you know, that's number one, right? The folk theory of intelligibility, that only a tree can have all these attributes. For instance, a chair can be made of wood, does not make it a tree. Now, you, you cannot find evidence of wood, leaves, and a pattern of change and call it a rock either. Now, this basic set of folk theories also happens to give us the basic foundation of formal logic. A tree can only be a tree. It cannot be a rock. It cannot at once be one thing and at the same time something else. This is called a tautology. X is not equal to Y. This is also an example of what is called embodied knowledge. We can create a formal logic around what we perceive and interact with every day. It is not some big mystery that a tree will never be a rock. But if you represent the same statement in formal symbolic logic to the average Josephine on the street, she would probably run away from the equation screaming in terror. But they are the same thing. The symbols the tree, the rock. It's how all of our classical logic and geometry was formed by interacting, observing, and coming up with agreed-upon metaphors for how best to understand it all in our heads. This is what I mean when I say embodied logic, logic of the natural world, of the natural interactions of our sensior motor system has with matter, typically inert matter. The example above of the tree and the logic derived from it is how we as a species develop logic, the self-same logic that occupies the parts of the bookstore that you never wander into. 
The fact that we all agreed to it is called common sense. Now, the Greeks were about to assault the common sense of their time and establish a new sense of the modern Western world. That's about right when the pre-Socratics began to turn away from myths and began to formulate laws and principles on how nature behaved. What is being? How do we know anything? These types of questions were now being answered in a totally new way. Gone were the epic poems and mythic sociopathy, and in was human reason and logic. The pre-Socratics would levy the three folk theories together and usher in, once and for all, the basic concepts of classical philosophy. They began this quest in the material world, so they attempted from the start to remove the immaterial, the metaphysic from their thought entirely. They turned to questions that they believed could be answered by observing the natural world. To them, being meant being part of nature, of the natural order, nothing more, nothing less. But as Dr. E.M. Malcolm would say, um, uh, nature finds a way. There is always something more, always an unintended consequence or two. When it came to the pre-Socratics and their decision to soup up the foundational folk theories of intelligibility, kinds, and essences with some high-octane human reason, unwelcome guests, at least as far as the pre-Socratics were concerned, slipped in the back door. By carving out a place for human reason and logic-based embodied thinking into the big conversations, the pre-Socratics had also set the stage for something they had tried very hard to avoid happening, the founding of a logic-based system of metaphysics. They work hard to avoid the calamity that is the metaphysical human condition. They failed. In the coming generations, in the form of Plato and Aristotle mainly, the being that the pre-Socratics worked hard to keep in the real world would take on a completely different meaning, all thanks to the logical foundation laid down by the pre-Socratics and their hybridization of basic sensory motor-based folk theories. Thales, the man who started it all, introduced his own version of a folk theory. Thales, the man who started it all, introduced his own version of a folk theory, a folk theory of elements, that things are made up of some combination of earth, air, fire, and water. For him and his followers, capital B, being, meant matter. Everything comes from a combination of earth, air, fire, and water. But, pardon the pun, did one matter more than the other when it came to the fundamental nature of matter? If everything has a kind, what really constituted matter? All four elements? Well, there are plenty of examples of matter that does not contain fire. Some combination of them? If so, is that recipe knowable? Repeatable? Or was there one element more essential, more elemental than the others? Confronted with the need to resolve the question of what matter is ultimately made of, Thales sliced the Gordian knot and chose water as the essential element to all of nature. Boom, bro, it's H2O. But someone asked the question, how can water be the building block of fire? Water is defined as cold and wet. There is no cold or wet involved in fire. How can water create its opposite in fire? Logic alert! So some diplomatic soul came up with what he called aperon, or, I love this, indeterminate matter. The essence of all nature is indeterminate matter. Not much of an answer for the materialistic pre-Socratics. And one smart guy pointed out that it was just the same opposite problem we saw between fire and water. How can something indeterminate cause something that is determinate? Next! So then air was chosen as the essential element of matter. Therefore, being but you can guess how that worked out. The next attempt at getting to the bottom of the classical elemental system was to put forth the idea that change itself was the essence of being. 
This particular insight comes to us from a guy named Heraclitus, who coined the phrase, you can't stick your toe in the same river twice. Change is a very insightful and creative argument for the foundation of reality. It is also venturing off into the wilderness of the metaphysical. Change as a concept has a stability and consistency. Therefore, it can be the building block of knowledge. Change can be understood by the mind. It is something real, but at the same time, unreal in the sense that change does not consist of matter. This is a big leap for the pre-Socratics and a glaring example of the type of speculation that Socrates was so wary of. What part of change can be known? All of it? If not, what part? And can we choose parts to understand? Are we limited in some way? If so, in what ways? There are lots of questions that need answering when the intuitive aspect of thought that is meant to work with matter in the natural world begins to fill in the blanks in the metaphysical. When you make a rash speculation about a rock, a natural force like gravity does a great job of setting you straight by crushing your foot with it. When you make a rash speculation about something metaphysical, there is, usually, no immediate feedback letting you know you fucked up. Your mind will play the emperor's new clothes routine until you convince yourself you are a god and will jump into an active volcano to prove it. Which a pre-Socratic named Empedocles did. I guess if every metaphysical theory came with a volcano validation, we would find out pretty quick how much someone really believed in their ideal forms or supreme being. So finally, we come to the Pythagoreans. You know, those guys that loved math. Not just math, but really numbers, specifically. They thought the secret of being was in numbers. After all, hadn't geometry showed us the real truth? That perfection of form exists in numbers and mathematics in the mind? And that the natural world is just a woeful representation of the beautiful world of numbers? And on the face of it, it makes so much sense. So much of their world would be explained by numbers. The earth, you know, and measuring out parcels of land with geometry. Music, health, celestial bodies, all seem to have a numerical basis in truth. Once humanity jumped into the world of mathematics and numbers, it has been a romance that has only intensified as it has evolved over time. Numbers are not real. They are not made of matter. They only exist in the minds of the humans contemplating them. Of course, that is not what the Greeks thought. They thought it the other way around entirely, that the ideas, the numbers in the Pythagoreans' case, are the pure reality, and that the natural world is but a crude representation of the perfect numbers as translated by our weak, limited consciousness. Now, this isn't just idle speculation on my part. I mean, the whole Socrates problem we've been talking about throughout this series was brung about by math. The love affair with the beauty of the unseen world of numbers entranced the philosopher Plato who spent a couple of decades after Socrates' death learning all there was to know about classical mathematics. And in his studies, he was entranced by the elegant perfection of numbers. Calculations and the numbers behind them behaved in a manner that was both powerful, graceful, and in Plato's mind, perfect. Mathematics, and particularly the math of space, played such a big role in his philosophy that carved into the arch of his school, the academy, was the inscription, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. Now, Gregory Vlastos believes it is this immersion in numbers that makes Plato veer away from the embodied Socratic thought that he started with in the early dialogues and takes him into the disembodied Platonic thought of his later dialogues. Now, this makes sense to me. Plato would not be the first or the last person entranced by the promise of math perfection. The influence of the metaphysical perfection of math proved too much for Plato to resist, 
and he went whole hog into the logical metaphysical world of the pure idea, the ideal form, which of course was best represented in numbers. So you might have picked up on this point, but the pre-Socratics were already doing metaphysics. They were already in the realm of the immaterial with their discussions of essential elements. They were using exclusively their reasoning and deduction powers to reach and disprove conclusions. You can also detect what Lakoff and Johnson points out, that the pre-Socratic reasoning was, quote, a very clear form what the logic of metaphysical questions are. It is the logic of seeking ever more general categories in nature to which one can apply even more general principles to account for the behavior of the world, unquote. Recall the three folk theories. The world makes sense. Everything is a kind of thing. Everything has an essence. When you are working on a metaphysical theory, dealing with the ideal perfection of mathematics and numbers, for instance, there will be a concerted effort to understand this supernatural world in the same way we understand the natural world of matter. A tree is not a rock. An oak is a type of tree. A red oak is a type of oak, etc. But instead of taking direct input in through our senses and interacting with matter in space, in our minds, the classifications never cease. The need to apply our material logic in what Lakoff and Johnson call seeking ever more general categories in nature, which one can apply even more general principles, I mean, where does it end? For Socrates, it ends by never starting. It would not be the case for everybody else. So Socrates was not interested in the material world on its own. His only concern was that of the inner workings of the mind, the consciousness that made a man happy and society nurturant. Of course, the material world was important, but to Socrates, there was no great mystery to it all because there seemed to be an order to it. Things worked. Fire burned. Water quenched. It always had, and he hoped it always would. Why would someone need to know more about it? Now, human behavior, on the other hand, was the exact opposite of the material world. There appeared to be no foundational laws and principles to be found that govern mankind. There also doesn't appear to be a whole lot of order to it. No human interaction could be described as working by a natural order. Chaos seemed to be the only recourse. Alms and sacrifices to capricious gods, the only means to make sense of the madness of men. The choice was simple one for Socrates. On one hand, you have the natural philosophers, and there are a goodly number of them by now, which is kind of another reason to avoid jumping into the fray. They've been dissecting the world piece by piece for over a century, and nary a word about the inner world of humanity. On the other hand, you have a dark, violent, and volatile world of human nature, and that is where Socrates chose to ply his trade. Socrates, like the pre-Socratics, also made use of the three fundamental folk theories. We can know it, it can be classified as something, by the very thing or things that make it what it is. But instead of matter, Socrates posed the questions regarding courage, friendship, morality, happiness. What made Socrates special was that unlike all the philosophers that will follow in his footsteps, and I really do mean all of them, he alone will have the fortitude to stop when his inquisitions enter into the metaphysical. Well, there are some modern philosophers that don't, but really, almost all of them. Whenever there is a certainty of a human concept like bravery or love, Socrates would scorn the idea that there were answers to such questions other than you know there is no answer. Now, he tries his ass off to find answers, but after 50 years of pounding the pavement, with his very life in the balance, he confesses to finding nothing but fools and charlatans amongst his fellow Greeks, especially those that espoused to know anything beyond what he called human wisdom, 
Another way, I think, of saying embodied wisdom. What goes up must come down. A tree is a tree and cannot also be a rock. If you wanted to go off on flights of imagination, no matter how rhetorically polished or logically conceived, Socrates would let you have it with both barrels. His relentless questions would soon parse your arguments down to suppositions and fractured logic, or simply to the fact that while it was a sound argument, it doesn't matter because there's no way for us to know for sure. Socrates' reticence to venture too far from the material world, to strive to remain as embodied as possible, was actually most evident when he was wishing and hoping that certain metaphysical concepts, such as an immortal soul and an eternal cocktail party in Hades, were real, but of course, there was no way of knowing, so what's the point of talking about it? To understand why this is important, let's take a glance at what happens after Socrates dies. His direct philosophical descendant, Plato, charged into the new field of philosophy created by Socrates and paid no heed to his staunch avowal of any speculation on the metaphysical. Plato was like a teenager in a rental car. Only this car was powered by math, and he started building whole metaphysical edifices, fully logical yet fully unreal. For Plato, the very logic of everything is some kind of thing that it has an essence and at the end is knowable was perfectly effective when breaking down the metaphysical. Even though he is credited with most of the information we have on Socrates, Plato pays almost no heed to his mentor's teachings. You can see that in the fact that Plato adopts the essence of being as numbers theory from the Pythagoreans and changes it to the essence of being is forms with a capital F. Similar to the Pythagoreans, as exemplified by the cave allegory, Plato believed that real truth was metaphysical, in the form of his ideal forms, and real truth can only be found there, not in the physical world. Now eventually, Plato reaches the same problem the earth, wind, and fire bros did. At some point, there has to be the most general category that encompasses the most general attributes of being, but it also has to have its own attributes, enough to be considered a type of thing on its own, because everything is a type of thing. It gets tricky. Now, it got tricky for Plato, but he fudged his way by creating the good. That is with a capital G, by the way. The good is an idea of something that is responsible for all the other essences of things ever, but itself does not have an essence. That's right. We are right back to the old, how can something create something that is its opposite? But Plato don't care. He calls the good, source of all essences, a thing that has no essence. He actually goes on to say this, quote, The objects of knowledge not only receive from the presence of the good their known being, but their very existence and essence is derived to them from it. Though the good itself is not essence, it still transcends essence in dignity and surpassing power, unquote. Now, Lakoff and Johnson sum up the consequences of thinking about disembodied thoughts using embodied logic when saying this about Plato and his metaphysical creation of the good. Quote, Plato's idea of the good is not just a quaint, archaic notion. It has been articulated in theological context through the long historical tradition, from Plutonius and other Neoplatonists to Augustine, Anselm, and Thomas Aquinas. In medieval theology, Plato's idea of the good became the concept of God, the prime mover, the ultimate causal source of all things, the source and the locus of all knowledge, and the perfect being, the origin of all that is good, the view of God that is still with us today. Unquote. After Plato, we as a Western culture never looked back. 
We innately understood the common sense of the day, the embodied logic of life, the world is knowable, the things possess their individual attributes, or essences that make them what they are, and they in turn use those essences to be defined as types of things that make up categories and classifications of things, until inevitably all things are in one big category called nature and created and managed by the good, I mean, I mean God. And with that, the next 2,500 years of history was written. Plato was able to wrest control of philosophy from his mentor and drive a stake into the heart of Socratic eudaimonia and move the meaning of life from the physical world and exclusively into a metaphysical one. This change is simple to articulate. As Paul Johnson states in his biography of Socrates, this core distinction between the Plato and Socrates, namely that Socrates is a populist, a person who believes in the needs of people and places the greatest onus on the everyday life of people, while Plato is an intellectual who believes in and places ideas at the forefront. Intellectuals believe that ideas are more important than people. When Plato established his snobby little metaphysics based on the capital G good, that is all but unknowable by the average person, and set up castes of so-called experts and very important people, mostly philosophers and mathematicians, he solidified the idea in the Western world that the average person is unable to access true knowledge, wisdom, and happiness without the help of some metaphysical expert. I guess if you are wondering where all the priests, pastors, and philosophy professors come from, there is your answer. Happiness was still an end goal, but you couldn't pass go and collect 200 bucks unless you passed through the professional metaphysicians that claimed your beliefs as under their purview. It is at this point in the history of Western civilization that happiness died. At least in the practical day-to-day happiness that can be attained for the low, low price of adhering to the mantra of five virtues and understanding that it is only matter that matters, only what we can observe, sense, and manipulate that can be sure of. Can we hope there is something out there? Can we believe and have faith in something greater than us? Absolutely. Socrates himself believed in all of that. But what he didn't do is make it a requirement to believe what he believed. It is not necessary that you believe what Socrates hopes for and has faith in. It is for Socrates and Socrates alone that those things matter. Because for Socrates, it was an easy decision. How would he go about making someone believe what he believes and cannot prove? At best, it starts with an injustice, dishonesty, as one would have to profess a knowledge that they didn't really have, such as knowledge of ideal forms or of God. And it only gets worse from there. If one was not receptive to your words, then in order to bring you into my way of thinking, a more dramatic way was necessary. A cruel, more inhumane way, sometimes violent. If one had to act unjust in order for a metaphysical system to function, then it was worse than worthless. To Socrates, it was toxic. And one cannot be happy when one is living in a toxic environment. For Socrates, eudaimonia was possible only if you lived a virtuous life living justly and never doing an injustice, even when one is done to you. This last part is hard to overstate how challenging it is to live by that credo. This last part, man, I can't tell you how hard it is to try and live by that credo. I've been trying to do it recently. It's amazing how many little thoughts and decisions need to have the virtues applied to them. Seeing litter on the ground? Yes. Living Socratically, I pick it up and throw it away every time. Same goes for answering all questions. No white lies allowed. I can tell you it's not easy. How about buying a can of tuna fish or some hair care products? 
All of this is filtered through the five virtues. Now, if you can do that, then Socrates promises you a life of happiness. So what do you say? Want to start a Socrates club? Probably not. You wouldn't be alone. Historically speaking, no one really joined the Socrates club because of the purposeful way he limited his quest for a virtuous, happy life to the natural world. Once Plato and others started erecting more metaphysical wonders, all logical, all pristine, all unreal, then the horse was out of the barn, the toothpaste was out of the tube. There was no looking back. Our collective will as a species was focused on what was going on in our own minds, placing whatever ideas popped in our head with as much, if not more, reality than reality itself. And if you think this is something that happened more back in the old days, in ancient times when gods and goddesses, demons and doppelgangers roamed the earth, making life hell for the humans just trying to get by, I invite you to spend some time on social media. Check out Flat Earthers, QAnoners, Yoga Demonizers, and those are just some of the extreme fringe groups. Most of us harbor some really outrageous ideas about the world. Just no one cares what we think. The philosophy of Socrates would not allow conspiracy theories to flourish in your head. Does this make sense in the real world? Can I know this like I can know a tree is not a rock? Is there evidence to observe? If not, sayonara, conspiracies. Life should make sense. Socrates believed that human behavior could be understood in a similar manner as the natural world because it was part of and worked directly with the matter of the natural world. To Socrates, that was the most important function of moral philosophy. Lakoff and Johnson sum it up with like this, quote, We are physical animals. We are the only animals we know of who ask and sometimes even explain why things happen the way they do. We are the only animals who ponder the meaning of their existence and who worry constantly about love, sex, work, death, and morality. And we appear to be the only animals who can reflect critically on their lives in order to make changes in how they behave. Philosophy matters to us, therefore primarily because it helps us to make sense of our lives and to live better lives. A worthwhile philosophy will be one that gives deep insight into who we are and how we experience our world and how we ought to live, unquote. And my argument is that Socrates has done just that. It is interesting to note that in the remarkable book, Philosophy in the Flesh, Authors George Lakoff and Mark Johnson make a compelling case for an embodied philosophy that has at its core a direct connection to the natural world. This is done through cognitive science, linguistics, neurology, and hopefully philosophy. They present their argument as if their vision of philosophy has never been attempted before. Ironically, they completely ignore Socrates and his system. I wonder why. It could have been that they just didn't want to get mired in the Socrates problem. And I can't really blame him for that. I mean, the oversight is at least ironic in the sense that not only did Socrates practice the type of embodied philosophy that the authors were wishing and hoping for, but Socrates, like Lakoff and Johnson, begin their philosophic quest with words, metaphors for Lakoff and Johnson, and simple, straightforward speech for Socrates. It is almost like you could cut out the entire 2,500 years of metaphysical purgatory humanity has been wallowing in and connect the dots with a straight line from Socrates to the cognitive scientists and linguists. But don't take my word for it. Socrates stated as much himself. Quote, Such as thy words are, such as will thine affections be esteemed, and such as thine affections will be thy deeds, and such as thy deeds 
will be thy life.